podcast where we talk about things with one super special guest every week. Just sit back, relax, and hear us speak on This Is Happening, the podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to This Is Happening. This is one of your hosts, Nathan Streifel. And this is Eric Morris. So today we are joined by another good friend of mine. You may have noticed <laughs> that we have to pull from, you know, our friend group. We've certainly had... Have to get to, because get we to. have such it's a good privilege, friends. It's a privilege. But, you know, we've actually had people on who have content, contacted us through social media or whatever that we don't know. Sometimes that can be great, sometimes something else. But uh, in, uh, in any case, um, we today we have Chris Lozada, who's one of the first people that I met... In L.A., not really. I mean, I've been here for about a year, but... Um, we went this, very early in our times together group, in Los Angeles. Yeah, this friend group that I kind of, like, was... I feel really lucky to have, like, fallen into. Uh, Doug Buden was kind of, like, the um, the focal point of it. I, you know, met him through someone I went to uh, college with, Stu Gibbs, who's a lovely um, children's book author now. Um, but uh, very soon after that, Chris was also friends with Doug and some of those same people that I went to college with from Penn. Um, and you were working at an agency, I think, weren't you at the time? Yeah, I moved to Los Angeles to uh, start working. I was at Columbia Dresser Television, and then I worked at what was then Broder, Curlin, Webb, Buffner agencies. The literary we agency representing writers, right. television writers right. mainly. Which has now sort of become ICM. They sort of took over ICM, so that's where all those guys are. Now. Or that department, ICM is has a storied history, right. but that department is kind of like the core yep. of that BK, whatever they were called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Broder, Curlin, Webb, Uffner. Uffner. Right, and then it had a couple other variations. But yeah, it was a very yeah. um, interesting, prestigious agency to work for. It was yeah. a great place. And you, so you started out as a TV exec, and then you went to a literary agency, and then you went back to being a TV exec. And then... I was a trade reporter, your fa- my favorite job of, of yours. <laughs> he did work, yeah, you were, we actually just spoke about this on Paul's uh, Nakauchi's episode, but uh, Chris then, you know, had a stint where he became a journalist, an award-winning journalist for many different, um, LA Weekly and The, uh, Nation, the Advocate yeah. and The Nation. Uh, he's quite a quite a uh, esteemed journalist, but he also worked for a television trade publication called TV Week, which I don't think exists anymore. But you know, he was covering award season, so he would be invited to all of the parties, and I was very fortunate to be his plus one at many of the Golden Globes and Emmy parties. And I think I made myself useful right from the (laughs) get-go by being very comfortable with celebrities and just lining up, like, people have... Having like celebrities circling him, saying like, "Okay, Sharon Stone, you're up next, right after Bill Shatner finishes." It was even better because you you would. I remember we were at so you ran up to Sharon Stone. You're like, Sharon Stone, Chris Lasada needs to interview you immediately, and she was like, "Oh, okay." (laughs) And then you're like, created the urgency. Yeah, you did. You're like, like, Miss Stone, I'm so glad you're here. And then you brought her over, and because I was already talking to. William I had, Shatner. Well, I had already put you in front of William yes. Shatner and like tapped him on the shoulder. He was sitting down because yes. he's old. This was, he was even old. This was like then. twelve years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, we didn't ask him to stand or wait. We I brought you to him. Right. 
got that going. Right. Then brought Sharon over for next. Right, and I for, think we also had Spader as we well. We did well, and for for <laughs> this was probably 2005, 2006 when David E. Kelly's drama, The Practice, was on the air, and basically, you know, it was a very prestigious show, and all these actors were coming on. And I think for several years in a row, Shatner and Spader were like back and forth with Best Actor Emmys. Yeah. And then all those guest stars, including Sharon Stone, were either nominated or won. And at around the same time, I was, you know, exploring the world of independent film and going to the Cannes Film Festival and, you know, um, meeting people there right. and Toronto and Sundance and all of these things. I was always in an environment that I was very comfortable in. Right. Star-filled cocktail parties. Yeah, and Eric Eric's, <laughs> Eric's, um, Eric, Eric owns the white privilege like nobody's business. Like he's just like, you will talk to this person. It's awesome. You have a confidence about you. Can, you. Ca- I can, can call it that. white privilege, I guess. You know, it's like, a I'm wonderful from confidence. money. I'm from celebrities. <laughs> this is my world. I deserve no, but, it all. But Eric, Eric is so good at well, the... You have a confidence that I I don't have and that you have a confidence that as a writer sometimes I'm, I get a little into myself and you were a fantastic person to be there because that's why you invited me it's time and always time again, good to have a wingman which mm-hmm. and so then I remember we were at our, my neighbor's Christmas party which there was just one recently yes. but um, and people were buzzing around Chris <laughs> saying like congratulations on your new job I forget what it was at the time but um, I was like new job what what your left TV week Eric's like I was informed you about this like, uh, I was Hello. Oh, I, I, I had a Golden Globe. I have my Golden Globe yeah. outfit picked out. What do you mean? And, you, and then, but even it was even better because you were going through the five stages of Greece. Yeah, like really well. And I you're like you were, and you were bargaining, and you were like, "Well, we'll still go to the Golden Globes, won't we?" And I said, "Well, pro- probably <laughs> not. I won't be invited because I won't be covering it." I was like, yeah. "Well, who am I going to get to replace you?" Then? Yeah, like, work. <laughs> it was like denial than bargaining. Soon was, enough, though, my friend Andy Boos from childhood came through because yes. he started producing or had been already producing Elton John's Oscar party right. so I had to so who's taking you to the Golden Globes tomorrow Ugh, no one <laughs> no one but I will say Timothy Chalamet did not call no. uh, <laughs> Timothy Chalamet hey 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 answer the phone I will say the Golden Globes like if you are if you are ever going to go to an awards party or the awards event the one you want to go to is the Golden Globes because it takes yes. place in one big hotel and it's kind of like Hollywood prom because most of the major studios slash networks will have parties either actually in the hotel or very close by so it's a fun weekend because there's things that happen over the course of the weekend but you'll be walking to an elevator and there's Laura Linney like we would just yeah. be wandering around and you have right. a special badge and you're just wandering the halls. Um, you know, they, they take out the business center. They take out different ballrooms by the pool. And it is a blast. Well, you blast. Go to many fun parties within that same Yeah, town. exactly. And um, that's kind of rare because yeah. usually you when... You have to travel across town. Right. And then there is a serendipity of just walking down a hallway or ending up in an elevator. Or try to people. find and get into Madonna's yeah. secret party, yeah. which, which I have done. But in, in, in any case... I'm very good at finding the parties it and getting is. into And Eric, it, so uh, people out there, if you are an entertainment reporter and you need to meet all the, the A-listers, have Eric Mars be your wingman. He okay. He delivers. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still available. You're that. available for those things. Yeah, I, I would still do that. You'd consider them. You'd I, put them on the consideration I, I, yeah. list. I mean, I, I, you never know what I'm doing any given night, but it could be. <laughs> it could happen. Um, so then also, Chris and I have actually worked together a little bit. We... Um, we had a company, and we also, before that, had pitched some reality show concepts and set up some pilots and things because Chris had become quite the reality television practitioner 
10 seasons of producing Big Brother, and then also many other shows. There was one about um, drug addiction. I forget which one that was. That was called, was it Addicted? It was on um, uh, uh, Discovery Health Network, and it was this woman who was, it was sort of like intervention, but you saw after. And it was all about their families and how the families come together. It's uh, a woman named Chrissy Monzelak who's based in the Marin area. So it was on, I think, the second season of that show. And her concept is, which I think from an addiction standpoint was really fascinating, is if you don't solve the family system problems, the person's not going to get better. So like if someone lives in a highly dysfunctional, highly aggressive, or highly addicted family structure they're never going to get better so it was actually very good for television it's quite compelling because her concept is you have to bring the family together and have everybody on board with the person getting healthy because her thing is you're not going to change the behavior so from a television standpoint it was really interesting to film I was only in post on that I was not in the field for it but it was pretty compelling and then I know they've done multiple seasons with her she's really compelling and fantastic um, presence on television, but she's very, very well known among um, dealing with highly addicted people. And that that kind of switch for you was a good marriage of the experience that you'd had as a television executive, mainly doing like drama, right? Um, and then also as a journalist telling stories. Right. So, as a television executive, what was your like job? Like, what so would you do? I did a couple things. So, and it's interesting how that may have changed. I mean, it's all going to blow up, right? Probably like ten, years, even six years from now, or even four years from now, it'll mm-hmm. be even completely different. But when I started in the mid nineties, like, I actually started in syndication, which is a great place to start because that's how studios make money. Yeah. And, you know, the idea of syndication. By selling uh, television TV series shows. all over the world. Right, all over Even the world. news shows, like yeah. talk shows and things. Right. right. Syndicating to sell them right. at right. different networks everywhere. Right, so it's both off, and now it's like all these models are exploding, but at the time it was things like Seinfeld coming off NBC and then being available, you know, either in late night or like five nights a week on your local station. Yeah, totally. But and then, also foreign market. Exactly. So it's, it's both. It's all those things, but that's where studio really makes money because like the models have changed but the, in in the past a studio that produced a show like a half hour show was basically deficit financing the fees that a network paid didn't cover their cost so the the a show w- would have to get sold into syndication in order to make money right and so if a show lasted just two seasons or one season that's a loss leader they're like, never going to make that yeah they're back. never going to make that money back i mean now that's changed with all the different platforms and digital and you know those kind of things but at the time and what happened was is a show that did make it into syndication was kind of like hitting the jackpot because like when i worked at warner brothers this was in the days of like friends in er friends in er and to a certain extent Drew carry was basically paying for everything and that's true of most shows back in the day studios would have one or two mega hits and that paid for that show plus all the mistakes plus the lights plus everything else that's why Les Moonves was so powerful and was is still so beloved and is you know currently or just came from being in St. Bart's with Ron Meyer who's not afraid to be seen with a with a proven rapist um, but um, you know whatever I, I'm not afraid to say that because I know you know like uh, so what Melissa, is- I know people that sent people to him to get raped which is not cool but he was running Warner Brothers while you were there um, no, actually, he was not. He was at CBS. He was on Warner Brothers when I was there. He left several years before. He left around '95. No, he left earlier than that because he left. I don't think so. Then why well, didn't then, then if he left in '95, I didn't join Warner Brothers until '98. I actually think he was okay. 
I did George Warner. No, because Tony you know, Jonas was there. Right, you're right. He, Tony, he left before 98. Yeah, he left right. before I did. So Because he was at CBS. Yeah, because Tony Jonas was there, and then Peter Roth, who was still there, came. Yeah. He's been there almost, 20, I think, 20 years. So Tony Jonas was there at the very beginning of my time at Warner Brothers. Yeah. Time was there. But and well, you're was, not here to talk about rapists. No. So, what, what, so, so you, you were a TV exec, so what would your job be on a daily basis okay. when you went in? So when I was at... Like I'll, so I'll, I'll talk about what I did at Warner Brothers. I was um, a development executive, and the way that, at the time, it was broken up you'd have a lot of places you'd have uh, drama development and then uh, people who did the current series so what we did is and especially at a big studio like and then there'd be a whole separate division for comedy right right and what it was actually at the time and now it's all completely changed was if you were a drama person basically what you were doing was just reading scripts you were reading content and meeting with, oh, writers. And meeting with writers but if you were a comedy person what you were doing is you were going out at night to the clubs and seeing performers scouting, kind of. and scouting so it was a totally different dynamic from what and then the having other. pitch meetings you know yeah. like like meeting someone who you think is smart or whatever and Maybe you read a script that you're like, well, I don't want to make this as a TV show, but maybe they have another idea. Right. You bring them in, and then they pitch you something. It's all a cycle, and that cycle has changed on too. But it was all about gearing up for the fall season. So basically, what would happen is at in so it's all new development stuff. Basically, right. you're working in. right. So what it would it would start in the summer where they you would start pitching. Right. You would send people out. To um, to pitch ideas, the networks would buy the concept. Usually, they wouldn't even buy a script. And then the idea was it would be late summer, early September. Those sales would start, and those sales basically um, maybe it was a little bit earlier. And then they would write the script. But what you were gearing up for was all the scripts would come in around this, basically around December. Remember yeah. this? And you'd have to read. The networks would read all the scripts, and then in January they would start picking up, um, pick things up to pilot. Yeah. And the way it worked is the model was. You started with a script, and it was like a pyramid. So at the bottom of the pyramid, there were thousands of concepts. Then maybe there were hundreds and hundreds of scripts. And then out of those hundreds of scripts, each network might develop five or six or eight or ten comedy and drama pilots, right? Right. You would then cast... And what's crazy is everybody would cast at the same time, right? So the, the talent pool would get totally thinned out, and you'd be racing around trying to get talent, and everybody was trying to get the same talent at the same time. Then they would look, you'd shoot like February and March, and then they'd have a month to look at it, and then all of us would fly to New York for the upfronts. And that was usually around Mother's Day. And then the networks would announce their schedule. And the, what the upfronts are about is then they would take them to the advertisers. And that, they, and like, you know, um, NBC famously always rented out, always rents out Radio City Music Hall. Um, you know, CBS always rents out Carnegie's, uh, Carnegie Hall. You know, ABC that, and, and you know, weirdly, that's something that I grew up knowing all about. Because your dad. my dad ran a global ad And so are the, the advertisers are basically the final say? No, they're way, just, or? they're the buyers for the time. They're not the final say, but it's just like, this is the presentation that the networks give to people as they decide what they want to buy. So they show like, here's our lineup and here, you know, here's CBS's lineup this year. Here, Here's ABC's lineup this year, and the you know the ad agencies and the and the it's really the agencies. Yeah, I guess, I guess the product maybe some people from marketing. Well, from they, the product there are, there are so because the agencies have buyer 
um, divisions. They right. decide and, what to buy. And the networks will do roadshows like they usually always do Detroit Roadshow, right? Because cars are such a big, um, you know, think about it, car, uh, automotive um, sales especially. I mean, that's why we have the TV season we do because it all aligned with Detroit releasing new models for cars. Like it all goes back to that. So when I was in development... And they'll highlight, they'll send you a report of the demographics right. that they're expecting to get. So like you try to find something that matches up with your product's demographics. Gotcha. So a soda that wants to market to teens is going to find like a teen show right. or right. like, you know, a car that's marketing to, you know, pe- people that want to buy a Cadillac are going to look for that demographic. Right. So at the time when I was in development, it was incredibly seasonal, right? Mm-hmm. And depending the day, almost down to the day, right? You could tell, I could tell you what I was going to be doing. Like if I gave you a schedule, like if it's this time of year, you're going to be casting. If it's this time, you're going to be reading. If it's this time, you're going to be looking at cuts of pilots. And that has now all completely blown up, even though we still have the structure up fronts are still very important. Billions of dollars are traded. But things don't, like things like Netflix and Hulu and right. Amazon don't participate in that. And they don't have, they have a year year-round schedule right so it's less important right. what premieres in September and they're always and, reading scripts and they're always yeah. casting and they're, they're always, always taking meetings right yeah. and yeah. they're also always remember they're not dependent on um, on because they have subscriber base. like their models they don't need advertisers they yeah they don't yeah. T- right. have HBO yes. doesn't do it either Showtime right. doesn't do it either so yeah so I mean all that has changed so when I was there it was very structured and at the time you were like are you going to go into drama or comedy that was pretty much it because MOW was kind of dying like movies of the week were gone were going away in the, in the 90s like a lot of um, uh, agencies were closing up those shops you know mm-hmm. they, that that model was going away so it was really there used to be network movies of the week and that's right. a big industry now cable networks like Hallmark and Lifetime and others have Fulfilled come to that fill gap. that right. in and there is still a movie of, not movie of the week but there's still TV movies well it's very interesting because we have a friend who hopefully will be one of your guests who um, Netflix has this um, independent film but like model which is like 10 and under but they're, they're it's really they're taking like the those Meaning holiday a, movies a budget of 10 million enough. yeah like a like a um, um, a woman in jeopardy film or like a, a very wholesome like story of like you know a kid who becomes a paraplegic becomes some kind of success or like like the classic Hallmark uh, Christmas movie, those concepts are now moving to Netflix the way that, you know, prestige drama series is and comedies did. So all of that is completely changing, right? The way that model totally. is set up. So, I mean, it really, even though it wasn't that long ago, it's completely different. So, and my other sort of transition was out of that concept, are you drama or comedy? I so I, I worked in drama. Then I was um, I worked on a couple shows. I was a journalist for a couple of years, and I was trying to figure out what to do. And I talked to a friend of mine, and he had evolved over to reality. And he's like, "You really need to talk to one of our, our colleagues, some guy I knew very well, who I'd worked with a long time." And he said, "You need to make the transition into reality because that's sort of where things are going, and there's a lot of opportunity." And he knew my background. He goes, "I think you'd be really good with reality narratives and stuff." And I spoke to um, this guy again, Maynard, who I've known for a very long time, who is attributed, I think, correctly with having helped shepherd um, uh, Survivor through CBS. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is, you know, very well respected and has been around for a long time. And I called again and I said, hey, I'm thinking about making the transition. And he was able to get me a couple calls. And then, you know, 
not even three months then, later, I was working on Big Brother. You know, it was, it was kind it of amazing. It led to at least a decade yes. of, of doing What that. season? Yes. Was it the first season through the 10th of Big Brother? No, I the... worked, I came in season seven, which was, mm. for people who were fans of the show, that was Dick and Danielle Donato's first season. <laughs> I so. think I might have actually watched through maybe seven or eight before I stopped watching. Yeah. I, I was, I loved Big Brother. Well, I've if, seen probably 28 seasons of Survivor. Yeah. I people are, those show. CBS, I mean, if you look at those CBS, the, the big three of, of, of Big Brother, Survivor, and Amazing Race, like they're incredibly vigorous, incredibly buoyant, like incredibly relevant. That I've that never have been seen. on so long at yeah. this point. And still it's the beginning of reality noise. television. I will admit that I've never seen Big Brother, but I will say one of the most fun, interesting things that you know I've done with Chris is at times when you were working on Big Brother and we were doing some other things, he would always like throw out there like Oh, and if you want to come to the Big Brother house on the Radford lot, mm-hmm. that's so um, funny. And you see these people through, you know, one-way mirrors, um, living their lives, and it's just fascinating to watch. It's a huge, you know, empire that they've got going on. What's yeah. crazy to me and about Big everyone wanted to do it. I mean, we took Suzanne Varney there, yeah, who was head of original content for Apple. Like anyone that mentioned it was like, "Yes, I want to do it." Um, Big Brother's so crazy because, like, Survivor will have, like, what, 14 episodes that are an hour long? Big Brother literally has, like, a billion episodes every yeah, single so, week and I mean, so much content. Yeah, so, I mean, like, I stopped, I ended uh, my last summer on there was summer 2016, but yeah, it's like four times a week. Um, it's an amazing operation to be part of. In fact, I just had lunch with a bunch of people that I, we all worked on. It's a very collegial set. Uh, people really get along. There's really no time to be get crazy because we're doing so much work. No, you so have like content. two days to do every episode. Kind of. Well, and it's 24 yeah. 7 programming. Yes. So there's just, there. You, someone is doing something to yes. put it together Absolutely. and put it out there. All the 24 the 7 monitoring, that came in a. You that was already intact because that wasn't the first or second season you couldn't watch. That well, I mean, it was actually in, started with a different company than the just, one. Just the one year, so okay. it was. It's it's it. Big the Brother first year was the calling year. Yes. Where you could call in and vote people off. Right, and that, that and model... It's based on a European television Yeah, concept. so it's based on a Dutch model. Um, this guy named Jan de Mol, who must be, you know, rich as minus. <laughs> there's been like 30 or 40 different iterations of it around the globe in different ways. But what they found when they, when they came to the U.S., and this is... I remember reporting on this as a journalist when I was in, in the trades, is they, um, in, in other territories, people voted out... Like the people that were, they, they kept in the interesting people, but Americans are so nice, they vote out the mean people, right? And then all the interesting people were gone, and then it was just like, whatever. So the show, the model has evolved in different places. Different production companies in different countries may produce it. Um, Endemol will keep, obviously, the rights and obviously get a fee, but they brought in local producers, and that's, I don't think the U.S. is unique in that sense. So they, they, they've they been able to, like, make each of these um, versions of the show unique to that specific um, marketplace. Right. Um, so they are quite different. Like I've, I've been abroad and traveling and seen their version of Big Brother, whatever the name is. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like totally different. But, um, you know, they found a very successful model that works very, very well in the U.S. And it's it has its audience. It's a very dedicated audience. These people are so enthusiastic and so passionate. But I think the show also really benefited from 
the technology that allowed streaming, right? Like the ability for you to watch 24-7 on your computer what was going on, which I, I think at the beginning of Big Brother probably like people didn't have the bandwidth, like in 2000 or 2001. It seems like not that long ago, but yeah. you know, to watch something live on 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 your computer, like your, your you know, hardware. Well, literally streaming, I don't think was yeah. quite possible until no. a certain level of technology. That's you right. Have to buffer. Yeah. And yeah. Wait forever. So, so that element of the show, and that also makes Big Brother, I think, much easier to work on than other reality shows because people will be like, well, what's happening? What's the inside scoop? And I would say, I, I don't know. Like, it's lot like it's will, right. like who's gonna get voted right. off this week i'm like well we'll you literally have to turn and see because i have no idea either like i don't know what's going on and that's the other thing about working on that show is kind of like working in the emergency room because you would be there it'd be crazy and you'd be off for two days and in those two days the whole house could change somebody so, pulls a knife out and well yeah, that was that very first season but <laughs> um but you know like i have friends who have worked on like the bachelor shows or other shows like that where like who is the final two and they have to keep that secret for months on end and they mm. have to like hide yeah. people into the more oh like, like our RuPaul's Drag Race right you know, they have to keep that secret right so most shows you it's nothing is being done in real time so that actually made Big Brother easy to work on because you were never like I'm you didn't just, have to keep anything yeah, secret. secret it was all live I'm like it's your like, guess is as good as mine what was yeah gonna totally I mean it was thrilling and fun because you just never you kind of had an idea what was going to happen but things would happen that you know were just weren't part of what you thought I do like the medium of reality TV I mean it wasn't you know we we've uh, you know, work together to like concept things and pitch them. Um, it is like you know, do- documentary. You know, like I, I came to have a lot more respect for it while working in it in a way than I did just from the outside. I mean, I think that although some of them are very entertaining, those housewife shows are kind of reprehensible. I feel like a little bit. They're very compelling, um, too, but they are compelling, and like you know, like. And I, you know, just because we were starting to work in it, I started watching more. And I think one of the things I really got into was like Vanderpump Rules, which is addictively watchable. Mm-hmm. It, one of the best shows ever to be on TV. It's just so good. It's just, th- these are idiots. These are drunkards. They're horrible <laughs> people. But it's fascinating to watch that. Well, and like, I mean, if you look at a show like Amazing Race, like, I think it's great that so much of the U.S. audience is introduced to the world, right? Because we're so Americentric, we don't see that much maybe on broadcast television of the world sure. as people should. And I think it's great that people are watching these people traveling all over the and world. And our next <laughs> guest is Kristen Doty, who I just called an idiot <laughs> drunker. <laughs> from from uh, Vanderpump. Never Ooh. seen Vanderpump. Oops. Well, whatever. Somebody, somebody sent me a message yesterday that was like, I just took my friend to soar for the first time. And I was like, what is that? And they oh, were like, it's the Vanderpump rules yeah. it's around the corner yeah I was but, like oh is it good and he was like no actually it's overpriced and the food's not that great I was like oh the bar's kind of fun if yeah. you can get a drink that's the only thing here's my thing like when you when people say reality TV you might as well just say TV because you've got everything from it's unscripted it's unscripted that's yeah. what they like to say and, in the right. and it's it's and then when we can talk about what soft scripted is like some of those we didn't you know some of those some shows will go different but like a competition show is very different like a competition show like Big, Big Brother is totally different from like Project Runway or RuPaul uh, totally. as opposed to like the docu-series yeah. which is more gritty it spans the gamut I mean, yeah. I love documentary films. I'm finishing one at the moment sure. um, about the making of Woodstock. Please check it out, August of uh, 2019, whatever. Um, but uh, I, I like that that kind of storytelling, real stories. Uh, I like that kind of radio as well. Sure. And then if um, you look at, you know, like, 
those then and then like the the HD HTTV format, which is almost down to the minute of like showing the makeover, or buying the house, or whatever. But I mean, you were you were someone who was kind of very successfully transitioned to different things. You know, as as one thing, either you lost interest in it, or maybe some company shut down, or whatever. Um, now you moved away from Los Angeles, which which saddens me, but also. Um, you um, moved away from from reality television and now are doing something called experiential marketing. You're actually the second person we've had on to do this, and I still don't know what it is. Okay, so for a lot, so when I wasn't producing television, you know, if you're a reality television producer, you're most likely not going to be employed like full time. You're going to be going from show to show. So you know, you work for four months like a crazy person, and suddenly you've got to find another job. So, so it's, it's freelancing. It's freelancing work. So it's it's Hollywood, baby. So I, what I also did besides television was I worked in the industry that does big events and trade shows and conventions, like large, large events where thousands of people come in. And in a lot of ways, it's a lot like literal production because the same way on a live TV show, you know, whether you like it or not, at 6 a.m., you know, uh, Pacific time, 9 p.m. Eastern time, something's got to be on the air, whether you're ready or not, right? Like, you're airing. And events are, you know, those big um, public events or um, those big trade show or convention events are the same way. There's a run of show. Yeah, 10,000 yeah. people are showing up on February 4th. Mm-hmm. you got to be ready. Where My the understanding of what you do, uh, and I, I don't pay much attention, so I could be wrong, <laughs> um, but my understanding is that you go in as a kind of like undercover-ish um, convention goer Sometimes and give this. a report back to your company, but ultimately to the client and say, here's what the experience of going to this convention was like. Yes. Here's what worked. Here's what didn't work. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's, that's, how, I, that's how I started. Yeah. So, well, uh, like now, now you're doing shopper. a higher level version. I'm doing another version of that too. But basically, what it is, experiential design is you're looking at a narrative. And the same way sometimes you are sitting in front of a screen watching a narrative, other times you are going through them. And what's interesting is, is a lot of people thought those sort of live events were dying. And they thought they were going to die, especially after 9-11. Because everyone thought, no one's ever going to want to get on a plane again. Uh, technology is going to come along so that we can all talk by monitors. It's the death of, of public events. But that just shows a very poor understanding of human nature. It is a very poor name. We want to get to get, congregate well, together. Well, not only that, but we've gone the other direction. Think about your phone. It didn't happen unless you take a picture of it there. So not only are people more engaged in the idea of coming together, they have to be able to document it because they can personally document it themselves with their phone or with whatever device they want to use. So if anything, from like a marketing standpoint, I mean, remember I do experiences. I'm going to say it's the most compelling. But, you know, events in general... Can, are your most a company's most effective way? And it's another way to sell products, you know, through through live events. So instead of doing, in addition to maybe for some, uh, you know, products, in addition to doing a, a campaign, an ad campaign where you should put an ad on television or on your mobile phone or whatever it is, also it's encouraging people to go somewhere and experience right. their product. 
and learn about it. Right, and, and, and there's different kinds. Like you so think, that's what it, I, I, I really do understand what yeah. experiential <laughs> marketing is. And, and some of them, and some are like, oh, like, a, like, like an automotive show, right? That, that can be open to the public. And then other events maybe, you know, like Just some industry. So industry or like you might, some show have qualifiers or events have qualifiers where you have to be a customer or you have to be a partner or something. So it all depends. And some of them are open to various audiences. Like some events may start, part of it's open to the public and then the rest of it's open to, you know, uh, either potential customers or partners or so a lot of a lot of what you do is going to big conventions often in Las Vegas yes and you did happen to be there during a very difficult moment yes I was sure I was in Las Vegas Um, I had just moved to San Francisco and um, I had I was going to Las Vegas for actually a couple things and basically my plans changed and I was supposed to arrive Monday morning and I flew down Sunday night at the end of September of uh, 2017 and I'm getting off the plane and I had been at uh, the Castro Street Fair that afternoon. I had no, not planned on flying that day. I was going to fly the day before. I'd like to go there. Super yeah. fun. Sounds <laughs> great. Those of you know, Castro Street Fair is like, it's in late September, which is sort of like the summer of San Francisco. It was like 75 degrees. And someone had slapped a sticker, uh, Castro Street Fair uh, sticker on my t-shirt. And I was there, but I got a text. They're like, hey, can you get to Vegas sooner? I said, sure, I can do that. So I fly into Vegas, and I had a big bag because I was traveling. I was actually traveling for several weeks, going to multiple several cities. Trips. It was It was multiple things going on, both personal and professional. So I was. it was the beginning of like a caravan of trips, but Vegas was the first stop. So this big bag, I usually don't travel with a, a large bag, but I had to like get through um, uh, you know, the baggage checkout, and then get, and I was like, I'm just going to get a cab, it'll be easier. And I went in the cab line, and I could see the t- my cab driver and the cab driver for the cab and behind his having this feverish conversation. So I said, I, can we get going? I'm like, is something wrong? And the female cab driver who's the, the cab behind me said, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm, I'm hoping to go to the Mandalay Bay. And she said, you're not going to get there. And I said, why? And she said, there's been a shooting at the country music festival across the street. So I envisioned very, you know, now naively, I'm like, oh, maybe like somebody got drunk and fired a gun in the air and some people panicked. So then they've just cordoned off the area. So I said to the guy and my drive, my driver was very uneasy. And I said, look, I said, just drive down. So the airport, for those who have not been to Vegas, the airport is quite close to the strip and Tropicana is one of the main drags. And I said, drive down Tropicana. I said, you can drop me off at MGM Grand. And then through a series of the sky bridges and the, and the, the people movers, I'm like, I can get to my hotel. Maybe the streets are closed off, but you can get me there. So it's quite close to the airport and we're driving down Tropicana and there are people running, running on either sides of the street. Oh my God, that's so crazy. Down. And these women are screaming hysterical and they're rolling down the windows. They're screaming at us. And my driver was really panicking. I was not for whatever reason. And I said, look, I said, just get me to MGM Grand. And he goes, I think I might have to go. And I said, I understand. So he got me into MGM Grand and he like peeled out. So I walk into the lobby of MGM Grand. I remember I have this big bag and I have like a... And still people fleeing the hotel. Are you walking the other way? Yes. So I walk into MGM Grand into the main lobby and it's almost like a triage center. There are people running around. People are screaming. Um, People had been coming from the concert 
And I'm like, what is going on? So there's this one woman sobbing on the ground. So I go up to her and I said, sweetheart, can I help you? Like, because she was there with her phone. She's like, I just want to call my mom. And I'm like, do you want me to dial? I'm like, do you want me to speak to her oh, wow. for you? Because she was clearly it almost, she was in, in she shock. Was in shock. She was in yeah. shock. She's like, no, I think I'm okay. So I helped her get up and I'm like, do you want me to stay with you? And she's like, no, 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 I'm all right. So at this point, then I'm realizing I could see the casino was still operating. But people were looking really uneasy. Vegas never stops. Well, doesn't stop. Doesn't Vegas stop. Gambling. Right. So at this point, I very stupidly thought, what I'll do is um, MGM Grand is on one side of the strip, and then there's a the sky bridge across all the you, know, you can't cross the streets anymore. And I'm like, were oh. you not freaked out at this point? I, for whatever reason, these like I, I, people. He was looking what? for his bed. Well, no, I was also <laughs> like, people were panicking because they were there, and I'm like, well, whatever happened what isn't happening to me. So I, for whatever reason, I wasn't. I was very clinical. About well, it. you joined it in progress. I, you well, weren't there when it started. You I didn't, still didn't know what it. No, happened. No, I, I still didn't know what had happened. That was the thing. So I'm like, let me cross the bridge between the MGM Grand <sighs> to get to the New York, New York, and I'll be able to see what's going on, which was a very dumb idea. So I crossed the bridge, the one side of the strip. It's open, and it's not a lot of traffic. It was, you know, it's just people go milling about their business stuff. But the other side of the strip, basically, there's an intersection where. The MGM Grand, New York, New York, um, the Tropicana, and um, Lu- not Luxor, um, Excalibur are. And the edge of that intersection was a sea of blue and red flashing lights. Everything from the biggest fire trucks I've ever seen to, um, you know, motorcycle patrol cars. Mm-hmm. And it was just a sea. It looked like it went back, like, a couple hundred yards of, of like service vehicles and people I can feel at this point you can start feeling the energy of like the tension so I finally look at my phone because I'm going to see what's going on and it turns out that um, a bunch of my coworkers we were on a um, uh, sort of like a shared group app, text. a group text basically and people were like I felt horrible because it turned out that I was a person who was um, not accounted for. Mm-hmm. So then I responded immediately, and the texts were amazing because people were like, I'm on the floor, we've been evacuated, da-da. And I was I still didn't know what was going on. So I said, well, I'm on the bridge between MGM Grand, and, or between MGM Grand and, and New York, New York. And somebody texted back and said, you need to take shelter. They said, um, you've been accounted for. They're like, do not come here. Find some other place to take shelter for the evening. Yeah. So... I walk into the New York, New York, the casino's still going, and there's about 50 people in line for a room. And something told me not to get in line, so I thought, okay, I'm just going to keep walking away, because there was like 20 hotels right all in a row, and I'll just walk away from whatever's happening, and then I will, um, you know, I will, I'll find a place. So I walk... You know, and all the, the, the hotels are connected, even though it doesn't really look that way. Yeah. So I get to what was then Mirage. Now it's another MGM property. Same thing. There was like maybe 20 people in line. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to do that. So I'm, I worked my way into Aria, which is in the city center. It's quite new. It's quite mm-hmm. fancy. And it's very a very, very upscale hotel. But I knew next to Aria was Vidara, which is a non-gaming hotel. And in general, those hotels are a little bit more chill. Not tons Sounds and tons. Like of, I hate gambling. Yeah, yeah. I, I, whenever I can, like, I always stay in a non-gaming hotel when I'm in Vegas. So I'm walking through Aria, and Aria is very upscale, very stunning, and it was super quiet. Like, And people were gambling, and cocktail waitresses were walking around. And what I realized when I was in the casino was... That most casinos don't help you find things, right? The wayfinding isn't all that great because they want they help you, to, you find the slot machines. Totally, they want you to yeah get lost and and gamble. and gamble. So I'm like, where is the check? And I'm like, maybe it's a different level. So I'm sort of like this, and then literally, as if someone flipped a switch, hundreds, 
like I can't explain how many people it was, start running as fast as they can, running and screaming, just go right past me. In Aria. In Aria. And it was like somebody flipped a switch. I'm like, what just happened? Like, and then the other thing I realized in that, because I've watched things like that maybe on television or you see scene and people are running. And I was like, why do people run? Like, if they just stop, it won't, it will be better. But what I realized is if I had to start running, because if I didn't, I would have been mowed down. So wow. what? Your huge bag. With my, and running. I knew, I knew if I let go that bad, I would never, never see it again. again. So I'm running and running and running. And honestly, at one point, I'm like, is there a place I can just push myself against the wall so I'm not going to get oh my run God, over? It was crazy. So. I somehow get out of the aria, and what now? And I had been uh, texting and sort of posting on Facebook, and like what was really amazing is that people were were sending me links so that I understood that what had happened was it was the shooting at the concert where um, the guy was shooting it was from a sniper. It was a sniper from a room in the Mandalay Bay, and unbeknownst to anybody at the time, he was shooting down. I think it's over fifty people were killed at this. A multiple day long country music concert and he was basically just picking people and off. And it just took them such a long time to find him and stop him. Well actually they, they did, it took it only took them I think it took them less than a half hour to find him. Like yeah. He was dead. That's I mean, plenty it, of time though to, to do a lot of damage. He did. He killed a lot of people. Um, so and that, that was who there. But what was happening was and what I also realized is that when panic spreads it's sort of like a stone that you drop in water and then there's rings mm-hmm. and I had been ahead of that ripple and then suddenly the ripple ran into me. Yeah. So I run outside to where City Center is. Those of you who have been to Vegas will know. Sort of Aria, the Cosmo, and the Vidar are all sort of in the same circle, sort of somewhat separated from the um, from the rest of the strip. And I don't know how it happened or where I ran or what, but the panic was starting. Like, it's just all adrenaline. Like, I was just trying to keep up. Yeah. So I basically had run downstairs. I had gotten myself to street level. And also, you know, you, it's not easy to walk on the street anymore. There's all these barriers and things because they really want you to be using the walkways that go above the right. strip. So I, this guy helped me, like, heave my bag over this fence and people are jumping through and stuff. So I'm like, maybe I can get to the Cosmo. So I go across the street to the Cosmo. And this is where I knew how bad it was. There were security guards at every door. Because if you think about a casino, there's no locks. Have you ever seen a lock in a door in Vegas? Mm. So there were all these security guards there. And they're like, sorry, but casino's closed. And I just looked at the guy and I said, I've, I've never heard the voice. me neither. I'm like, what's happening? And I said, where can I go on the strip? He said, the strip's been closed. He said, the strip shut down. And he goes, there's concern that there are shooters all over the city. Mm. And then I was thinking of... Um, if you think of like Iraq or Afghanistan where like a bomb goes off and people run and then there's another bomb or something. So at the time, people thought they did not know that he was a lone gunman. So now it's very clear. Like the reality, in the reality, it turns out I was in no danger at all because no. that, but I, that was not you, clear. You weren't in his range. No. But they didn't know. No one knew. And because, and, and it seemed like it could be like, right. no one knew where it was coming from. That's right. So it could have been like, the shooter here, the shooter there, That's coming right. from the ground. Like, That's people right. were just getting killed all over the place. People didn't know. So, in reality, he had been taken down. Everybody was in, in safety, but that was unknown at the time. Yeah. So, I, I said to Where the guy... Where did you end up going? Well, what I ended up doing was, is the guy sort of directed us, and I did not know this, but at the base of the Vidara, this is beautiful new fire station. So, they were telling people together, but the fire station was closed. Like, it goes to show also when something crazy happens, like, trust yourself and don't just listen to what people say. Like, and it's well-meaning, but there was hundreds of people gathered, and I'm like, I saw everybody panic. I don't want to be sitting with those people. So yeah. I walked around the backside, and it's like, who goes to these parts of Vegas? I'm basically standing in what I realized was the 
loading dock for both the Vidara and the Bellagio, because the Bellagio is next to the Vidara. So, and all these people are looking up and they're looking at windows, very concerned, and, you know, people are saying things, and of I'm trying course, to... Of so there was a tractor trailer there that wasn't attached to, like, a cab, but it was up on stilts, you know, up mm-hmm. on the things so that the cab was straight. So if you think about it, a truck, that's a good, like, two and a half, three feet below, you know, of space. And I thought, okay, if nothing, if, if I can't go anywhere else... I'll just get under the truck, pull my bag behind me. Luckily, it was warm. I'm like, I'll just oh sleep gosh. here for the night. And Did I you slept. do that? So what was going on inside the casinos? Because it turns out I had a friend who was at Paris or someplace else sort of mid, mid on the strip is that, and I guess it's amazing because I guess they can shut down the, the, game, the gaming in like a matter of seconds, right? Like when they make a call, like all those tables and the pit bosses and they, like it's all closed up and done. So... As things, the panic was spreading, all the casinos were shutting down. And what they were doing is they were warehousing people, either in the big theaters, you know, theaters like the Cirque Soleil shows are, or they were just loading people into ballrooms. So I had one friend I was looking at, as my phone was about to die, he took a picture of him and his friends just standing in this empty ballroom with like dozens and dozens dozens of other people who had been gambling at like the craps table. That's so crazy. So Horrifying. So... Then, all this, I don't know where they went. Maybe they finally let them into the Cosmo. That huge crowd of hundreds of people that had been standing in front of the fire station were gone. And I look over to the other side of the um, the loading dock for the Bellagio. And there's like five or six women standing there. And I realized they were workers from the casino that had been, like, had gotten off shift and were basically waiting for, like, mm-hmm. their husbands or friends or boyfriends to pick them up. So I go over. Um, nobody really spoke English. They were all... Um, women of Latin American or Mexican descent. Um, and I was trying, I don't speak Spanish very well. And I was trying to communicate and they didn't know it was, nobody really knew what was going on. So then all of a sudden this car pulls up and this woman gets out and starts speaking to some of the, the casino workers. It was JLo. No, it was not JLo. But the woman was speaking. I'm like, she's not speaking Spanish. She's speaking. And her husband gets out and I'm like, what is she? I said, that's not Spanish. She's like, she's Portuguese. I'm like, uh, or she's Brazilian. Right. And it turns out that she and her husband both worked for Cirque du Soleil. She had some relatives who were now trapped in one of the casino or one of the ballrooms. Where did you sleep? So they, I asked the guy, so I'm looking across from where I was standing. Bellagio? No, I was seeing, I could see the 15. Uh And I'm like, what I'd like to do is get to um, either the Rio, like one of those casinos off the strip. I'm like, I bet you I could get get something there. But one of our mutual friends, David, had sent me a message and said, my uncle will take you if you can get to him, go to Henderson. So the uh, woman, the woman. So you knew someone. I did. So, and that's reason. And I have to say, what was re- well, what happened was, is they came out. The woman came out with her relatives, and the husband wasn't going to give me a ride. He had no interest. But she's like, "We'll take you. Where do you want to go?" I'm like, "Not here. Wherever you're going's fine." And I said, "Ultimately, I'm trying to get to Henderson." She's like, "Well, let us drive." She said, "The service road, which is Frank Sinatra Drive, is still open." And honestly, so we drove north, and it was the fastest drive in Vegas. Cause David it was who? David Stern. He has a relative. A in relative, Vegas. and he texted me. God bless him on Facebook. And said, that's so sweet. Here's his address. This man is waiting for you. Uh, He's not oh going to go to bed. It so was. Nice. It's really moving, and it's still. I think we'll see him later tonight. Yeah. I'll thank him. No, I have. I have, and I one well, time. You, I was, yeah, but I, I, that's very lovely. It was beautiful. It was like honestly, like I. I went that's after. actually that's how we met. Is through I went to college with David Stern and Stu Gibbs and. Um, you became friends with them as well, and that's that's why we know each yeah, other. Yeah. He's a lovely guy. Yes. So they basically just dropped me off at a, this other hotel, very very far north in the strip, like well away from all the well north of the. And then did the thing that you were there for get canceled? No. It actually went on. Everything went on. And all the things. Everything, everything like went back to normal the next day. Well, you just continued right. to work. Well, you did your work. You know what? It, uh, your traumatized team uh, of coworkers. You know what? We all. It was. Um, 
it was, you know, we all, well, luckily, no one that I, like, it was terrible tragedy, terrible things. No happened. one that you worked with. No one that I worked with or the different event. There were several events going on at the same time. And by whatever, the grace of whatever you believe in, nobody was directly impacted for either the, the many of the things that I was in Vegas for. So I was there for a number of things. So in Vegas also, uh, the one thing I will say about that event is the way it was sort of portrayed in the media was like, it was like, oh, Vegas has been, you know, uh, it's been an attack on Vegas, and yes, it was very terrible. But the most of the people that were—it was not a locals' event. Like that was a high-end ticket, and most Vegas of the people were from outside. Vegas is a transient town, exactly. That um, you know, and if, and that yeah, that was like a country music event. Yep. Um, all of those people would have been gone the next day. And they were. Um, and that's who it affected. But of course, Vegas itself. I mean, locals. I you know, I have friends that well that grew up in Vegas and. Uh, are from there. I'm sure that there are people in Vegas who were traumatized by sure. that event. Yeah, I'm Just not like saying, New Yorkers uh, were traumatized by 9-11. But what the different thing is, is that um, that city is so transient, it is. right? It and is. it's sort of, it, it's not like, and if you live in Vegas, you're not hanging out on the strip. It's the same way like people in Anaheim don't hang out at Disneyland. You know, we don't go to Universal Studios. But you, you never know. Any any given night, you could be anywhere. But the point of the matter of Vegas is, within three days, it's almost a completely different totally. to right. people. So sure. the, the, the people... And that's we, about all Vegas is tolerable for us. <laughs> three opinion. days. Vegas is a three-day town. So, <laughs> so by the end of my... I was actually there for well over a week because I was there for multiple reasons and by the end it was that we were the besides the workers in the in these in the casino like we were the ones that were there like everybody else was new so they were I mean obviously people were very concerned I spent a month in Vegas on a job I'm not going to really discuss but um, you know we were living in different casinos um, and I hated it Uh, and after that I really felt like I never needed to go back I discovered (laughs) dirty martinis um, you know and my colleagues and I would be like okay and then we also like we were getting so antsy and being there so long we just like let's okay more and more expensive dinners. We're going to go to Emeralds. Really, you know, it's like an, an oil company was paying for it. I'm saying more than I should, but whatever. Like, we'll go here. We just like, we just like spending money yeah. like wild. I hate Vegas. I think that I've only been back Maybe with you, wasn't it for Doug's birthday? I wasn't there that that weekend. Okay. You were there. Well, for that, I was that. I was there. You know, I'll go for a party if I have to. But I really hate that town. Well, I hate it. At, because I go all the time for work, I've been able to go back and make peace with what happened, and everything. And good and, for you. And it was good. And like, I don't have a lot of your work is there. They have that's a big convention it, town. Yeah, it's a da- where there's yes, it's a big city, and there's a lot of things going on there. So anyway, um, but for conventions, I prefer Cannes. Yes, yes, I wish I have. That really there. is a convention town. It it really, that's what it is. It has it has cool. a casino and MIPCOM too. There's Mip, a lot of events. It, yes, but throughout the year, like yep. the Cannes Film Festival is like ten days in May, but year round they're doing conventions in that town. Yeah, I would. I've never done it there. I've done Barcelona multiple times, and that's a great city to visit. Yeah, it's great. So, um, Chris, where are you from? Oh, I was born in New York City. <laughs> I was born <laughs> in Brooklyn. Like, let's take a turn from sure. all that bloodshed. I'm sorry, but trauma. No, no, no. I, I think it's a fascinating story, and I, I love how you got through it, and you took us through the the real experience that you had with it. Um, you know, that's not easy to share. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, but you are from New York. I was born in Brooklyn. Uh, my mother is uh, didn't live outside the confines of New York City until she was 27. When my dad took her to Topeka, Kansas, 
Her wow. first question to him was, are there subways in Topeka? <laughs> Fair question. She was sheltered. Yeah, she, she grew up there. You know, upper West Side girl, right? Like, girl yeah. night. She's from the Heights. So um, I grew up mostly in and around New York, but I also spent some time in um, upstate New York, but mostly grew up in New Jersey. Um and uh, like the New York City area, so, yeah. And my dad um, grew up along the Hudson, so I know that area quite no, well. No, and you're, you um, yes, your mother, who's just one of the loveliest people, and I don't get to see her Who enough. Just sent her love. I just put her on the phone. Uh, please, yes. I mean, she's just she's a, a great cook, you know, um, and it's just a lovely woman, she's Kate Lasada. Piece of Hopefully work. Hopefully, she's listening. She's a yeah. piece of work. That one. She, she been, is. She's really. I really adore and your mother. And she adores you. Yeah. She does. And, and and so and weirdly, I, we talked. One time, uh, and her one of her closest friends yeah, she grew up there. worked at my high school, Horace Mann. Yeah. Um, so it was someone who I knew, like as the middle school yep. coordinator or something oh, like that's that. So yeah, random. my mother and her were in grammar school together. I went seven through twelve to Horace Mann, so it's a lot of years. Yeah. And you know, interacted with her mostly. It went when I was in middle school, right. but it was all, she was there the whole time. Yeah, and it's funny you know her much better than I do. I've only met her. I mean, once or twice. I knew her when I was a teenager. Totally. I don't remember that. But much. she, my mother said she remembers you. She was like, I remember her at Mars. Oh well, I, you know, I blaze a trail <laughs> <laughs> in a blazer. <laughs> Maybe I'm memorable. I don't know. So yeah, so I uh, yeah, I grew up in New York City. I went to Northwestern. Um, yes, Chicago, which in, where Nathan has also lived. Yeah, Chicago's was a great town as well. It was a great place to go to school. Yeah, yeah in Chicago was awesome. And then I lived in Japan for a couple of years, teaching, teaching English, as, as lost people do. It was fantastic. <laughs> it was a great experience for two years. And then I moved. I was in grad school in San Diego, and I came to LA. Much uh, study after that. Uh, international business. It was oh, sort nice. of like international relations and Pacific studies. It was yeah. like like a business program plus um, you needed a language proficiency plus and then um, you ended up in San Diego yeah I was in San Diego for grad school for two years it was so great. you lived in San Diego what years were those 93, 95 two years the, it was immediately after I lived in Japan for two years right? okay so and then you from San Diego you moved here I was in Monterey for a year working for a media research firm called Kagan World Media which was based in Carmel. But your years in San Diego yes. were an interesting time to be there. They were an interesting time. And I remember when I first met you, you had you were discussing a friend, yes. that, well, someone that this you guy, knew. I, not a friend, but somebody, this guy named Andrew. So I graduated in 95, 1995 from grad school, and I remember going, and it was before I had found a job, so I was kind of working on campus and living in Hillcrest, which is sort of the game. it is, the gay neighborhood in San, uh, San Francisco, lovely city. Lovely San, Diego. Diego. San Diego, I'm sorry. No um, and and I went to this party for this guy, which at the time, and still is, it's a big mil- military town. And this guy was quite high in the military, or in the Navy, but this was still during the don't ask, don't tell years. But a lot of guys lived quite openly, and he was going on uh, like a six-month cruise. And he was having like a goodbye party. And a friend of mine invited me. He's like, it'll be fun. There'll be a lot of people there. And I knew a lot of people, but because I had been in, in graduate school, I didn't know a lot of the locals because I had been just on campus studying and things. So I was still getting to know people that summer. So I walk in this party, there's like maybe like a hundred guys there. General and, Mattis? <laughs> no, General Mattis was not there. Not that high up. Not that high up. This guy was like and, a uh, lieutenant or More gay. Yeah, it yeah, was, yeah, these yeah, were, yeah. all the guys there were in their, all the guys there were in their 20s and 30s. So, oh, for sure, for sure. Um, and it was this goodbye party for this guy who was going to go on cruise for whatever. And we're there, and I just remember this guy comes in, it's like a presence, and he's super loud. And this being the mid-90s, I, among about 10 or 12 other guys, wearing pleated khaki shorts, because oh, yeah. that's as one did in 1995. Totally. So the guy's like, oh, look, oh, we're wearing the shame shorts. Like, come get a picture. And 
one of my pet peeves is being in pic- pictures of people I don't know. I find it very uncomfortable. And I just kind of got dragged into this picture. There's like 12 of us. I'm like, I don't know anyone here. Why am I in this picture with these people? This is weird. You know, this is before phones. is when people had to like yeah, take a picture. And someone yeah. would have to like give you the picture. Yeah, and I, so I was never going to see it ever again. <laughs> so, and you know, a bunch of the Navy guys were all darting out of the way because they didn't want to be in a picture with a bunch of yeah, avowed right. homosexuals. Don't ask them. Yes. This is pro- no, this is don't, don't ask them. tell. But yeah. you know, these, you know, could have been a problem. So anyway... I um, I was like, all right, whatever. So then I moved to up to the Bay Area, and that winter, so Christmas of 95, um, I'm out and about with a friend of mine, and we're hitting up the bars in the Castro, and we end up at Midnight Sun, and there's this guy there, and we had seen him the night before outside Baghdad Cafe, which is no longer, it's like a well, late-night food place. I'm like, I know that guy. I'm like, how do I know that guy? And the guy I was with was also from San Diego, and he said, I'm not sure. So he comes up to me, and he said, excuse me, he goes, did you just live in San Diego? And I said, yes. And I said, you did too, right? And he said, where did we meet? And then we realized we met at that goodbye party. So he's with this young guy who had to be like, I mean, we were only 25, but he, this kid must have been like 19 or 20. And he's like, here, let me buy you a drink. And he, I said, he said, he asked me what I did and I explained I had moved up there. And he said, my name's Andrew De Silva. I said, nice to meet you, Andrew. And we realized we had some mutual friends and I'm like, what are you doing up here? And he said, well, um, I am, um, a friend of mine is thinking of having a baby and I might do artificial insemination with her. I'm like, oh wow, that's amazing. So he's like, well, what did you do in San Diego? And I said, I was in grad school. And he said, what program? And I told him this international business program. And he said, oh, he said, did you study with Chalmers Johnson? And did you read this book? And did you study this? And I'm like, yes. Like he was very knowledgeable and he was able to sort of repeat things back. So then he said his father was Israeli. He said he lived in La Jolla Shores, which for San Diego people, he seemed like a trust fund kid, like a guy who was, his came family for was, came for money. And he's like, oh, well, I live here. And he, didn't, he said, he like rich people do, he kind of didn't really say what he did for a living. But I'm like, oh, that's kind of a rich people thing. So then he's like, well, my mom, I said, what is your, uh, where's your, he's talking about his family and his mom comes. He's like, well, she's in New York. And he said, you know, she was working on a book of Etruscan art. But, um, you know, sadly, <laughs> the artist died, or the person who's working on it died, and it's really thrown it off. And I'm thinking, and this is 1995, and I'm like, wait a minute. I said, was your mother's author Jackie Onassis? Because I knew Jackie Onassis was writing a book. He said, yeah. And he said, you know, she's just really Oh, the upset. editor. Oh, my mother's editor died. Yes. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. And, and he said Doubleday. Love it. So here's the thing. So I'm like, wow. <laughs> That's a good so, lie. So what I realized was that he was saying all these things. Like he did He wasn't being, he wasn't um, boastful, but he was laying out things for me to if figure. If you knew, you'd know what he was so talking about. So there are probably things that he said to me that I didn't pick up on. Right. But he was saying things that I was like, wait a minute, like Jackie Onassis? And he said, yeah, he's like, it's really sad. And, you know, the book of Etruscan art. Because I knew that she, that's what was she, the project she was working on when she died. Uh-huh. So anyway, then he said. Um, he reads. He reads and knows his shit. So <laughs> then he said, what are you doing tomorrow? Do you want to come to breakfast with us? And we're like, sure. So we show up in jeans and sweatshirts thinking it's breakfast. And he said, we'll meet you at one Embarcadero, which. I did now know is somewhat at the time was kind of a fancy, fancier place mm. to have brunch. Sure. And we show up, and Andrew <laughs> and his friend are in blazers. And like, I think Andrew even had a tie. And we were in jeans and sneakers and college sweatshirts. And I said, Andrew, we're so sorry. Like, he's like, no, no, no. He's like, I overdress for everything. He said, my friend Jeff is coming, and don't worry, he'll be dressed less like you. He's like, please. Oh, he said, I, it's not meant to make you feel uncomfortable. Please, please. And, and um, it's on me. So we're like, okay. So we sit down. He's like, you're actually the court jesters of the night. <laughs> it wasn't like that. It's actually, he was more. He's the one, like, being very effusive and everything. 
Yeah. So then this guy Jeff he's, shows. He's like a three ring circus. Right. He was his own three ring circus. Yeah. So this guy Jeff shows up, very handsome. He was in the Navy, and he had been out clearly all night. It looked like he was had was like mm. death warmed over. It looked like he had a lot of fun. And they had, he was from San Diego too. They had all come up together, and he's like, oh, Jeff was out and about being a big, you know, whatever. Last night he's like, I'm sure he was, sure he was having so much fun. So it turned out. So Jeff. This guy, Jeff, had gone to the military academy, and it turned out that he was the same year as me from college, class, I think class of 91. But he knew a bunch of guys that I had gone to Northwestern with who were ROTCs who were in my fraternity just by chance because he was from someplace in, like, rural Illinois. So we had these weird, like, sort of Illinois connections, as you would know from being in Chicago sometimes happens. But Jeff was kind of, like, sad. He was very mellow and very sort of beta. And then Andrew was like, oh, like, Jeff and I dated for five minutes, but he's really my alpha to my beta. And he said, we're really much better friends. So we're sitting at breakfast. I'm about to order an omelet, and a plate of mussels comes up, or oysters, and Andrew's like, just let me, reminding everybody, he said, everything is on me today. And I've ordered a couple things to begin with. And we were like, oh, you really don't have to. And he's like, no, 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 I insist. I must. I must. I invited you. And I, I feel like I've embarrassed you. Please let me bring all this food. So we have this very elaborate um, brunch. Super brunch. Super brunch. <laughs> he pays in everything for cash. Mm-hmm. Everything's in cash. Mm-hmm. So then we're like, oh, thank you so much. And he was very boisterous and, and loud and laughed very loud and very entertaining. Trying hard. Trying very hard. Yeah. But it wasn't desperate. It wasn't like sad. It was just he was on. So then we leave the restaurant and my friend and I, my friend had moved to the city and we're like, well, bye. Like, we'll see you. He's like, no. He said, you must come and see our hotel room. And we're like, what are you talking about? He's like, we're in this fancy hotel and we have this amazing view. Come see the amazing views. So we're like, okay. Because sort of on the way where my car was and my friend was going to head back to his place. So we go into this hotel room and it's this beautiful hotel room. It's probably maybe like a $300 hotel room at the time. And it did have an amazing view of both bridges, both the Bay Bridge and the Golden Gate. But I was like, okay, whatever. It's a, you know, it's a hotel room. And he's like pointing out like, the, the marble and the, like he's like and look at this and look at this in the hotel room and look at all these things and how beautiful this hotel room is and we're like okay like whatever right so and Jeff was kind of cute and I was standing there and I'm like hey do you want to hang out after and he's like no 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 he's like he said I have a friend coming very soon and he kept looking at Andrew like get these guys out of here right and it was just, the whole thing was weird. So then it was getting, like, it wasn't weird, like, they were coming on to us or anything, but it was just, Jeff clearly had something going on, but there was only one bed in the room, and apparently they were all sitting there. It was weird. And I wanted to get out of there. Clearly, Jeff wanted us out of there, but Andrew was just sort of going off. So then we finally got escorted out. And I say goodbye to them. Um, I call my friend the next day because I drove back to Monterey where I was living. And he's like, it's bizarre. I said, what a bizarre guy. And he said, yeah. He said, after you left, we walked over Union Square and he insisted on buying me stuff at a store. And then he took me out to dinner later. He's like, it was very strange. I'm like, it's just one of those interesting characters, I guess. Do you know who he's talking about? No. Well, he's getting there. So I go back down a couple months later and back down to San Diego. And I'm at a restaurant with a friend and Andrew walks in and he's like, hello, hello, hello to everybody in the restaurant. It's like this presence comes in and he comes over to our table. Air kissed to me. Oh, my God. Are you moving back to San Diego? I said, no, I'm living here. I'm living, just visiting. And he says hi to the, my friend who we had gone on a couple dates with. And he walks off. And my friend said, you know what he does for a living, don't you? And he drove up in, like, a very, like, not fancy car, but it was very pristine. He was always very pristine the way he dressed and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, not super flashy, but everything was, like, perfectly put together. And I'm like, is he a drug dealer? And he's like, yeah. 
because he never it was, everything was cash. He was always very put together, and he wasn't a mess. And I'm like, well, I think we okay. So then, when did you learn who he was? So I, I had. Come back every time I went to San Diego. I you, eventually you, you ran into. I didn't realize you ran into him this many times. Multiple times, multiple times. Yeah. So, but I, so every time I'd come down to San Diego, he would be. He was. He was ubiquitous. He was always around, and I would always. And he knew everybody, and he'd always make a point to come and say hello. So one night, I was out with friends in one of the bars, and they left early, and. Um, I was there and Andrew was there and Andrew was a fixture. He was just always around and he was kind of fun to be around because he was just sort of entertaining. Like, I didn't really consider him a friend, but he was just entertaining. And we were there one night and he was like, oh, look at those guys over there. They're very, very good friends of mine. And like literally my friends had just left and I was basically just finishing a beer before I was going to go back to their place. I'm like, oh, that one guy's cute. You should introduce him to me. And sort of like I'm just talking to you. He goes, you're fucking pathetic and pushes me on the ground of the bar and storms out. And I'm lying there on the floor and I get up and no one had really seen what was happening. And I'm like, he's going to come back in and like laugh or something. And then I never saw him. So then I, I was like, what just happened? That was the last time you saw him? No. Uh-huh. So then I go back to my friend's place and they're like, how's the rest of your night? I'm like, well, this weird thing happened with Andrew De Silva. And they're like, oh yeah. They're like, we hear like, it's the classic, you know, drug dealer thing. We hear he's starting to use and there's been some erratic behavior. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, it's just a drag. And right before that, I had asked him, I said, how is Jeff doing? And Jeff had ended up leaving the military. He had gone up to Sacramento uh-huh. to go to uh, CHIP school and then to California Highway Patrol. And he came back and it was he was kind of a lost lamb. Like, it seemed like Jeff was kind of not sure what he was doing. He seemed very kind of sad. Right. But he's like, I think he's moving to Minneapolis. So I'm like, okay, that's good for him. So then I was like, screw that guy. I moved back to California or Southern California this time. And then I was there maybe like a couple months later and I was with some friends, probably around Pride. And... I'm in a bar and I'm with my friends. I'm like, oh, there's that crazy guy, Andrew. And they're like, is that the guy that you told us about who pushed him? I'm like, yeah, he's kind of a freak. So he comes over to me and is like, oh my God, it's so good to see you. And I'm like, do you not remember our last? And I'm, so I kind of like weirdly hug him and I'm like, mm-hmm. like, is he going to say something? So then he says, and remember, this is before Facebook, before LinkedIn, before everything. He's like, you know, I hear you're living in Southern California now and you're work. And he said, I hear you're li- living in Santa Monica and you're working for Columbia TriStar. You know, I have a bunch of TV ideas and we can't wait to come pitch to you and I'm like well I said I don't really do that Andrew this is before I did development I said I don't know why you would come to me for that and he's like well we but have that's, a lot of ideas. that was true you did have that he did. job but what did he know exactly so I'm like well, okay I'm like whatever Andrew he's like you know I think you'll be great in television we're going to do stuff together I can just know and I'm like whatever so then a couple months go by, a friend of mine comes to visit me in Santa Monica, and he said, did you, he said hey, um, did you hear, did you know Jeff Trail? I'm like, yeah, I said, he's that guy from the Navy. I said, he was kind of sad, but he was kind of cute. And he's like, well, he's dead. And I'm like, Jeff's dead? I'm like, he's like 26. He's like, well, yeah, he was killed in Minneapolis where he lived. And he goes, did you know Andrew De Silva? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, Andrew, they want to talk to. And he goes, did you know that Andrew's last name isn't De Silva? I'm like, well, what's his last name? He's like, it's Cunanan or something. And I'm like, Cunanan? I'm like, what was that from? So he was Andrew Cunanan. Andrew Cunanan murdered Johnny Versace. Yes, I just whole, watched that second yes. episode of So, that. like, you were actually taking us through some of these episodes yeah. of, um, what is his name that played the part? Uh, uh, Darren Chris. Chris. Yeah, yeah. So, so Jeff Trout was the first, they think, is the first person who was killed in Minneapolis. And then there's this, and 
There was a whole other story that Andrew had told me. I actually didn't realize that you saw him so many times. I saw him multiple times. I did not know Because that. he was ubiquitous. If you went out in San Diego, you if saw him. you were him. gay in San Diego at And that in your time, 20s at the time, you time. he was part of your cohort, whether yeah. you wanted it to be or That's not. That's crazy. Yeah. So then when all that shit started to go down, so then, so this was when it was just like, a, a, people were talking about in San Diego. So he's like, yeah, like they, and I'm like, Coonan, like, what's that about? And he's like, yeah. So then this was still relatively early in the internet days. And I like, remember going to work before I even had a computer at home and like pulling up the Minneapolis newspaper, like sort of the beginning of those proto sites for news and stuff. Yeah. I'm kind of reading about it. It was sort of treated as a local crime story. And it was sort of also locally treated in San Diego, but that was it. So then that other guy's body was found. The guy who may have helped the older guy. No, 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 this was before that. Oh. There was another guy found in a lake. So there had been a guy with Andrew that yeah. was... So there was a whole... There were two people who were dead. Then Miglin dies yeah. in Chicago. And that's when it became like a national story. I think Mike Famous Farrell... Famous businessman. Yeah. Yeah, Mike Farrell played him. And right. And Judith... Uh, like like Marilyn McMahon. Yeah, yeah. Marilyn McMahon. I mean, it's just horrifying. Yeah. I mean, luckily, you didn't get closer to him and got no. murdered. No. You know? And I mean... I know... So a friend of mine who knew some guys who, like, really knew him, and all those people, like, were gone. They all took off to points unknown for weeks on end when it was all unclear where he was. But what is crazy is I was watching, like, CNN... I thought that was such a good miniseries. I loved it. I only saw a couple episodes, but the ones I thought were really compelling. I saw the whole thing. I thought it was really well done. I thought the acting was amazing. The writing was great. I just... It's it's a terrifying story. I, I part of it I, I didn't want to see any of the Jeff Trail episodes because I f- would find that too disturbing. I watched the one episode I did, which was his early life, and I knew some people who went to bishops with him. So and they said they thought they really captured the essence of the school and stuff. So I watched those early episodes, but I didn't want to watch the the Jeff. No, episode. I get it. If I knew some of those people, I think maybe I wouldn't want to watch it, but I didn't. So I so, was yeah. able to watch it. Wow. Wow. Mm, That's really. crazy. Couple of very dramatic stories. I'm really not this a very like, turned into a little bit of a different kind of show. But I'm, just, but I'm not, I'm not like a dramatic it. person. This is I'm really not. No, are... no. I mean, like, and I truly like. We, you know, I, I did. I knew some of the, but I, I didn't know that you had seen Kunanan as often as you did. Yeah, there were other because like, when we met, like, it did come up because obviously Versace, you know, was killed and. Um, I and that was right what, after. What, yeah, it was well, very soon after. And and so you were like, oh, I knew him, but I, I didn't know all the details of well, the times that you saw. Him. And I don't think I told you this, so I was watching that that room that you're talking about. They they do that shot for like, you see that room, Which room? in the the one with the view oh. of the you know of the of both bridges. Oh really? That's in the miniseries. Oh god, I don't want to see it. I wouldn't want to see it, but yes, um, I'm. I've, the episodes I saw were super compelling and interesting, but um, yeah, I don't know if I'm ready to see the rest. No, you it's, needn't. It's, no. Um, all right. Well, you don't really have anything to plug. You're you're paid for um, experiential <laughs> marketing. Uh, you, you know, so like you're, you're traveling the world and going to Japan soon. Hopefully, hopefully, Japan um, things. Um, it's good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you for having me this morning. Uh, yeah, you, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Chris is, is wow, presently a house guest of mine. I, I, it, I tend to conscript house guests like Chad Johnson and other people to do the pod because that's how we get these things Why not? out. But thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed. Some of that was spellbinding. Oh, good. Thank you. Um, yeah, bye. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> thanks, Chris. Yeah, thanks, everybody listening. All right, talk to you later. Bye.